Genesis 26, verses 1 through 35. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. And before we do, let's again pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Father, great is the company of those with whom you gave your word, and we are thankful to be the recipients of your word. We thank you that at various times and in various ways you spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days you have spoken to us by your Son. And our God, we pray that you would make us to hear the voice of the Son of God this morning, not just physically as your word is read, but that you would make us to hear his voice in our souls, and that you would draw us forth, and that you would... Draw us with cords of love and that you would accomplish all your purposes. We pray that you would send out your light and truth, that you would lead us and guide us to your temple, that we might worship you together with your Son and Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 26, beginning in verse 1. And now we are returning to the history of Isaac, having briefly moved into the history of Jacob and Esau. And here Moses writes, now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and give you offspring and give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar when the men of the place asked him about his wife. He said, she is my sister. For he, was fear, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing. That obviously, is a euphemism for caressing or showing intimacy to Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek. By the way, that means contention. Because they contended with him. 
Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he, he called that name Sitna, which means hatred. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night, saying, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Azahath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to see me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have not done to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and they drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from there in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I mentioned to you recently that one of the experiences I had this year was waking up and realizing that uh, everyone who had ever said, one day you wake up and realize you've become your father, had happened to me. I realized that I was no longer as young as I wished I was, and that many of the experiences that I'm having in life are sort of paralleling those that my father had. Many of the same challenges and trials, yet in a different way, are sort of paralleling his experiences, even in the spiritual realm as we talk. And as I think about the relationship between my father and myself, and I think about how much I didn't want to be like my father as a boy, and yet how much I've realized I've become like him as a man. And as I consider those things, and maybe you've known these things with your own parents, that there are things you really want to emulate about your parents, and there are other things you don't want to emulate, and yet no matter how much you push against those things that you wish you didn't emulate about them, you see them rising to the surface in you. I'm sure that that will be much worse case with my own sons than it is for me and my own father. But as we consider those relationships and we see the way that God works, especially in the Christian home, especially in a home where believers are nurtured under the ministry of the word, where believers are taught the scriptures, where the covenant promises come to bear, and we consider our own lives if we grew up in such a home as that, or if we consider that maybe now our children are growing up in such a home as that, and we realize that God tends to work in very similar ways in the lives of all of his people. As I came to this passage this week, I thought in the philosophical realm, one of the things that secular uh, philosophers will tell you is that history is cyclical. Actually, it's not. History is linear. It's moving to consummation. God is carrying everything to consummation. And yet the way that God works in the lives of believers often carries a cyclical pattern to it. The way he works in the homes of believers in the covenant home 
often carries a cyclical pattern. And when we come to consider Isaac, we're almost left wondering how it's possible that so much that had happened to Abraham could now happen to Isaac. And we're left wondering that so many of the things that Abraham did, Isaac was now doing in the covenant home as God was teaching Isaac so many things about the covenant promises. As God is essentially in this chapter, he is confirming the covenant to the covenant son. Now, before we jump in and look at this, you might... You might have that question in your mind. I thought we had already moved on. I thought we were already looking at Jacob and Esau because we kind of moved so quickly past Isaac. And yet here, God gives a whole chapter, devotes a whole chapter to the interactions of Isaac and the recapitulation of the things that happened to Abraham now happening to Isaac and God confirming his covenant to Isaac. And and it comes, and this is very important, it comes right in between what we're told about Jacob and Esau in the birthright, and then in chapter 27, how that comes to bear with Esau and Jacob picking up intention and conflict over the birthright. And yet God has returned to Isaac. And in a very real sense, we have to read this chapter as having happened before what we read about Jacob swindling Esau for the birthright and Esau selling off the birthright in unbelief and in selfishness, and in self-pleasing, and it comes actually before, because here we see that Isaac, as he is traveling, and as God is directing him providentially, as, as the Lord is, in a very real sense, forcing sojourning in the life of Isaac, that when he comes into the land of the Philistines, into this king Abimelech, that we're going to learn that he, he is willing, as his father had done, to hand his wife over for self-preservation. And it would seem that at this point he doesn't have children because if they had children, it would not be very easy for him to pass off uh, Rebecca as his sister rather than his wife. And so we're left with the question, we're left with the question, why? Why does Moses position this chapter in between the history of Jacob and Esau and the birthright on either side of what goes on in this chapter? And I think... I think the reason why the Holy Spirit has put it here is so that we would understand that everything that happens to Jacob and Esau over the birthright is not about a physical birthright and a physical inheritance, but everything that's happening is being drawn and pushed and seen in the spiritual realm. That what is God is doing with Isaac is he's confirming the covenant of redemption. He is confirming to Isaac the promise of redemption. He is confirming to Isaac what he had confirmed to his father so many times in the history of Abraham. He is now telling Isaac, I am going to do everything that I said to your father Abraham. I am going to strengthen you for the journey, and I am going to make you know that it is all of grace. I am going to so order the events of your life that you will know that the blessing I promised your father is entirely by grace and is meant to root you and establish you through all of the turmoil, through all of the sojourning, the not knowing where you're going, the exact same dealing that God had with Abraham, he now has with Isaac. That's going to be hugely important to us who have either grown up in Christian homes or are now raising children in Christian homes, that we would recognize that God deals generation by generation, in confirming his covenant promises in order to build us up in faith. Well, we see this in three things in this chapter. Very basically, we see that God is confirming his covenant promises to Isaac now in the face of difficult circumstances. 
we see that God is confirming the covenant promises to Isaac in the face of personal sin and failure. And we see that God is confirming the covenant promises to Isaac in the face of persistent opposition, difficult circumstances, personal sin and failure, persistent opposition. Notice that this chapter starts out as you'll remember Abraham went through a famine and when he went through that famine, he went down into Egypt and that's where he lied about Sarah and God plagued Egypt and he brought him out with great possessions. And you remember all that story here. Moses is telling us that the exact same thing begins to happen to Isaac. Um, I think one of the things that we can take away, one big takeaway for all of us is that if you are an object of God's covenant mercy, if the triune God has chosen to be gracious to you, you can be sure of one thing. He will not let you be content here. You can be sure of one thing. We're going to talk about Isaac becoming very rich here, actually, under God's blessing. But you can be sure of one thing, that if you are an object of God's mercy, God will not let you grow content in the here and now. He will not let you set your heart on this earth and this world. Remember, Esau was the earthly-minded man. He was the man that wanted to feed his flesh. He just wanted a bowl of soup. He would give up the covenant blessings for that. God would not allow that to happen to his father. Notice that God sends a famine. And he tells us in verse 1 that it was beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Just in case you think Moses maybe got the stories wrong, maybe Moses is confusing characters, God says, no, it's a new famine. And what that shows us is that the Lord works in similar ways in the lives of his people. He often uses very similar things to bring his people to a place of trusting him and and trusting his guidance. One of the things that Isaac doesn't do here is he doesn't pray. He doesn't seek the Lord for guidance. There's a famine. He decides, my father went down to Egypt. I will go down to Egypt. And the Lord comes and intervenes and he stops him. And he says, no, you will not go down to Egypt. I want you to remain in the land where I'm keeping you. Now, there's a question, because if God is confirming confirming his covenant promises to Isaac, even as he had confirmed them to Abraham, and there's this pattern of recapitulation in the histories of what they experience, why did God allow Abraham to go down to Egypt when the famine struck? But he doesn't allow Isaac. Well, I think the answer is God deals with us according to our personalities, according to our strengths and our weaknesses. Many, many theologians have noted that that Isaac would not have been strong enough at that point. Isaac was not like his father. Abraham, remember, took the 318 men. He went to war. He was bold. He was courageous. He was strong. Isaac was more fearful, more timid. Isaac needed God to nurture him in special ways. And one of the beautiful things is even as the hardships come and God brings the famines into the lives of believers in order to confirm them in his promises, in order to build them up in faith, that the Lord deals with each of his people according to their needs, according to their personalities, according to their temperaments. Um, It doesn't mean he makes it easier. But God in his perfect wisdom deals out exactly what he thinks his people need. Now, I think that is a marvelous truth for us to get our minds around. Because the more the Lord sends hardship into our lives, the more trials, the more challenges, the more he brings us to an end of ourselves, 
we can always recognize no matter how crushed we feel under that, no matter how weighed down we feel under that, no matter how burdened we feel under that, God in his sovereignty has so crafted whatever that providence is in our lives, and he has done so to bring us to a place where he will confirm to us the promises he's made to us. He will build us up, not according to what we can handle. That's a complete misnomer. When, when people say, God will never give you more than you can handle. God will always give you more than you can handle if you're a believer. God will always. If you're a true Christian, if you're not a Christian, things may go great for you. If you're a true believer... God will always give you more than you can handle, but he will meet it out. He will give it to you in a way that it is perfectly catered to you so that you learn to trust in him, so that you're not too crushed under it, so that you learn to cry out to him. Matthew Henry, as he reflects on this section, um, says the intrinsic, the intrinsic worth of God's promises cannot be lessened in a believer's eye by any cross providences. What he's saying is there's nothing God can bring into your life that in any way will lessen the greatness of his promises. God has sent the famine into Isaac's life so that Isaac would see more of the greatness of God's promises, so that he would see the faithfulness of God, so that he would learn to sing in a time of barrenness, great is your faithfulness, O God, my father. God is establishing and confirming to Isaac his faithfulness. And notice, he, we are told, comes to Isaac and he tells him, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. I will be with you. I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give to your offsprings all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There is there's this other really wonderful thing. And, and as I watched my dad go through many difficulties um, through his life, and yet trust the Lord in those difficulties... One of the things that, that I learned and one of the things I'm personally learning and I hope that you're learning is that God's plan is vastly better than any plan you might have for yourself. Isaac certainly wasn't planning on experiencing a famine, on having to uproot his family and having to move around not knowing where he was going. And yet God had a perfect plan in place for Isaac. God has a perfect plan in place for all of his people. That means if you're in Jesus Christ, whatever you're dealing with, whatever is happening in your life, whatever you're experiencing, whatever is going on, if you're in Jesus Christ, God has so perfectly ordered that, that you might see the greatness of his promises held out before you in the midst of all those trials and difficulties and uncertainties. That's a marvelous thought. We do not read the promises of God off of our providences. We read the providences of God off of his promises. We acknowledge he's got us right where he wants us. That's really been a helpful thing to me in ministry. Um, when I counsel others and when I seek to counsel myself, one of the things that's really helped me is that I can say, because God is absolutely in control of all things, and he's doing all things and ordering all things for his people, I can say that anyone who's in Jesus Christ, God has you right where he wants you. He's got you right where he wants you. But I hate being here. He's got you right where he wants you. There's nothing, as R.C. Sproul says, there's not one maverick molecule 
Not one maverick molecule. There's not one event of your life where God doesn't have you just where he wants you. And so Isaac obeys the Lord. He learns obedience. You see that God actually encourages that in the covenant. That's one of the things. While salvation is all of grace, and we're going to see that in a second, and while God's mercy comes to us completely undeserved and completely by God's sovereign mercy, nevertheless, God's purpose is to take those that he's been merciful to and to conform them to the image of Christ, to make them obedient. When he comes to Isaac, he reminds him of his father's faithfulness. He says, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. He's, he is encouraging Isaac to learn to walk by faith obediently. He's, he is encouraging Isaac to learn to embrace the covenant promises and to live by faith and to walk in obedience. And that is always God's goal. If you're a Christian, that is God's goal for you, that you would learn to walk humbly and obediently before him. And then secondly, we see that the Lord here is confirming his covenant promises in the face of personal sin and failure. We saw this with Abraham repeatedly. Abraham twice handed Sarah off out of fear, out of self-preservation. One of the sad truths that we learn here is that our children oftentimes will learn the sins of their parents. That's one of the sobering truths, isn't it? I, I think about my own failures, my own sin, and what my children see, and, and pray at times that, that they would not learn what they see in their father. That's, that should be a prayer all of us pray, because we're all great sinners. And, and here... Isaac has learned from watching his father. He learned that it worked for his father, and so he concluded perhaps it would work for him as he goes to Gerar, as he goes into the land of Philistia, and he comes across uh, Abimelech, who is probably the son or the grandson of the Abimelech that Abraham had dealt with. And now Isaac, in that recapitulated history, is going through the same incident, and instead of trusting the Lord, he fears And what he does is he compromises for self-preservation. He is willing to give up his beloved wife to save himself. The same pattern of disobedience in his father is now manifested in the son. And yet, and yet, God protects Isaac, this time not by plaguing Abimelech as he had done with Abraham, but by having Abimelech rebuke Isaac for what he was doing. You know, there's a great warning there, by the way, for us. The world is always watching. The world is always watching. This is, this is really Isaac living in the world and interacting with the unbelieving world. And as we saw with Abraham, so now with Isaac, the world is always watching, taking note. Abimelech is processing what he sees. He sees Isaac and Rebekah acting like a married couple, and he realizes that he's been deceived. And And he acts more uprightly than Isaac. And it's much to Isaac's shame. Isaac has lost a witness. Isaac has has lost the witness to the covenant promises that he should have held out in the land in which he was sojourning. And Abimelech acts more uprightly, tells him to take his wife, and to protect his own people from what might happen to them. Notice verse 11, Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. One of the things we see, though, and this is the striking thing, as we saw with Abraham, that humanly speaking, and and it seems so reasonable to us, Isaac is the one who should have been chastened for what he did. 
Isaac is the one who should have who should have been at a loss because of what he did. Isaac is the one God should have come to and rebuked and turned away, and Abimelech should have been dealt with in mercy and grace. But that's not how it happens. God deals mercifully with Isaac, even in the midst of his sin and failure. That is such a that is such a good word for us. It doesn't encourage us to live in sin. But if you're a true believer, you know so often you so painfully see everything that goes on inside you. And you know that you don't deserve blessing. True believers know they don't deserve mercy and grace. We don't deserve the presence of God and the promises of God and the nearness of God. And yet God says, no matter how much sin has been in your life, I have set my mercy and my grace upon you. You are a vessel of mercy. And I have promised to bless you and I will confirm my covenant promises to you even when you stumble. Now, it doesn't mean God doesn't chasten us. The writer of Hebrews makes very clear that the Lord chastens those he loves. And yet he does that because he loves us and his blessings still rest on his people. Those who have come to Jesus, the blessing of God rests immovably upon the people of God. Isn't that wonderful? The blessing of God cannot be given and then lost. If you're in Jesus Christ, Isaac is the object of God's saving mercy and grace. And even in that time of personal sin and failure, God is confirming his promises. He is telling him, I'll be with you. Do not fear. He protects Isaac at the council of Abimelech. Finally, though, we see that God is confirming the covenant promises in the face of persistent opposition. It's not just that there are these circumstances, the famine. It's not just that there is Isaac acting in fear and and making decisions out of a desire for self-preservation. There is constant hostility being aimed at Isaac because Isaac is an object of God's grace and mercy. I recently had someone who was very hostile to me in a very unjust way. And and I remember saying to Travis, "I, I don't know why that person was so hostile. Well, no, we do know why. When the world hate you, Jesus says, don't be surprised, because it hated me before it hated you. And when God sets his mercy and grace on people, it automatically puts them in a world of hostility and enmity. It automatically makes the believer an object of opposition. Automatically, believers are the object of opposition. Wonderful, the Holy Spirit tells us why. As Isaac went place to place and as he grew and the Lord blessed him, notice verse 12, he sowed in the land, he reaped in the land a hundredfold, even in the midst of his sin. God was causing him, and in the midst of a famine, this is the remarkable thing. There is a famine going on and Isaac is reaping a hundredfold. That's supernatural. And, And the Philistines don't understand why. They don't understand why is Isaac reaping. Why are we not reaping? Why are we suffering from the famine while God has placed his blessing on Isaac? And, well, I want to say this as an aside. While we do not ever want to embrace a sort of health, wealth, prosperity gospel that says, if you're trusting Jesus, then you'll just prosper and everything will be great and your health will be wonderful and your bank account will be full, and while we, while we always want to reject that, we want to acknowledge that the scriptures teach that God's blessing on his people oftentimes has tangible ramifications. That when God is gracious to someone, there is oftentimes an, an overflow of blessing, even in the temporal realm. That that's not just Old Testament. 
the Apostle John in 3 John says, I pray that, you're, that you may be in health and may prosper just as your soul prospers. That God's blessing accrues to the believer even in this life. And, and what happens is unbelievers see God's blessing and they see that it's undeserved and they see that it's for people that aren't the smartest or the best or the most noble or the richest, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that not many noble or mighty or wealthy are called, but God has chosen the base things and the foolish things of the world to bring to nothing the things that are. And as the world sees God giving his grace to the base and the weak and the unintelligent and those that obviously ought not be prospering, and as the world sees them prospering against all human logic, they are envious. And we see that as Isaac is becoming very wealthy, we're told in verse 13, we're told that he had possessions of flocks and herds and servants, and the Philistines envied him. I want to say something this morning. I've never said this in the pulpit, ever. The Bible says... In, in the Proverbs, wrath is cruel and anger is a floodwater, but who can stand before jealousy? The Bible says jealousy. It was envy that led Cain to kill Abel. It was envy that led the men of Noah's day to heap so much scorn on him. It was envy um, that led Esau to despise Jacob. Here it's envy that leads the Philistines to hate Isaac. It was envy that led the nations to hate Israel, the Old Covenant Church. And all of that is moving in redemptive history to the envy of the world against the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that, that Jesus was handed over to Pilate because of envy. Because the Jews wanted to retain their power. The religious and political leaders wanted their power. And here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords come into the world, the heir of all things, the one to whom everything belongs. God sends his son into his vineyard, and they despise him out of jealousy and envy. And that is the case for every believer in this world. The world will envy believers. The world will then turn that envy into opposition and hostility. Everywhere that Isaac goes... Here are the Philistines filling the wells that Abraham had dug. Remember, there was a covenant. Abraham and Abimelech, probably the father or grandfather, had covenanted that those wells would be off limits, that they belonged to the covenant family, that they belonged to the patriarchs. But now, out of opposition and hostility, they are cutting off, trying to cut off Isaac's livelihood. They are trying to cut off Isaac from the resources of the land. They are trying to strike a blow at Isaac. Um, it's almost humorous how God is dealing with Isaac in this chapter because uh, you know, no matter how much the nations rage, no matter how much the unbelieving world uh, tries, to, tries to oppose and, and push down the believer, God, God is just working out his plan. Isaac, in meekness and humility, says, okay, I'll go to this well. That well, we'll call that contention. And then they plug this well up. We'll call that one hatred. And he goes to another well, and they finally leave him alone. He's got a well. God, God's going to provide for Isaac. Isaac is willing to take the wrong. He's willing to be opposed. He's learning to trust the Lord. And the Lord is providing everywhere for Isaac. The Lord is saying, I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will be with you. I will, I will make sure that you have just what you need. And notice that the most wonderful thing happens at the end of this chapter. Um, Isaac comes to a place where God is continuing to remind him 
that he's with him. Fear not, I'm with you. I'll bless you. I'll multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And then Abimelech comes with Phicol, the commander of his army. And notice they come in peace. This whole chapter is moving from famine, sin, opposition, to peace. Isn't that interesting? The end goal is that God has said, I will even make your enemies to be at peace with you. After you pass through the famine, after you are restored from your fall and your sin, after you learn in meekness to take the wrong and to walk away from the hostility and opposition, not to take that on yourself, after you learn to trust me through all of that, there's peace. There's peace. There's this um, remarkable parallel if you look at the Lord Jesus, the covenant son, and today's Palm Sunday, and as I thought about it, uh, you know, there is this just complete parallel between Isaac and the Lord Jesus. He, he, is, um, he has to go down into Egypt, remember, and come out as a boy. And, and he's recapitulating the same things that happened to Abraham and to Isaac. And his whole, his whole life is a life of opposition. Jesus is opposed constantly. Everybody envies and hates Jesus because God's blessing is upon the Redeemer. And yet, as he is heading to the cross to make peace for his people... Because that's the end goal, remember, peace. He's heading to the cross to lay down his life, to deal with the opposition, to deal with the sin, to deal with the hostility, to establish the covenant promises. As he goes there, he goes in on a donkey. Um, I've read this before, and I'm going to read this to you this morning. Frederick Krumacher, old German theologian, He's writing about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as he's heading to make peace. He's, 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 in a sense, meekly walking away from the opposition. He's, he's not vindicating himself. He's taking the wrong, and he's heading to the cross to take all of the wrongs on himself and to be punished for his people. Krumacher says, The whole scene of the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem has a typical and prophetic side. The progress of our Lord, so destitute of pomp, neither clothed in purple or on a war horse or accompanied by ribboned magistrates or dignitaries, but in the simplest attire, on the foal of an ass, surrounded by poor fishermen and tradespeople, gives us a hint in which manner Christ for centuries together will manifest himself on earth until his second coming. The expressly quoted prophecy of Zechariah confirms these words. Behold, your king comes unto you lowly. Comes unto you lowly. A word that describes at the same time the idea of an entire absence of display, pomp, and dignity. This is the attribute which is peculiar to his government to this hour. What Krumacher is saying is that everything about how Jesus responded, just as Isaac was learning, was he was learning to respond in trust to his heavenly father. He was, he was taking the low road. He wasn't seeking to vindicate himself. He wasn't seeking, he wasn't seeking to assert himself sinfully. He, he rode in lowly on a donkey, on the fall of a donkey. And, you know, the world would look at an Isaac and they would say, that's weak, should have fought for those wells. And, and we have that tendency to want to do it. He, they were his, should have fought for it. But just like the Savior, Isaac is displaying for us what it looks like 
when the Son of God will come into the world, will face all of the trials, all of the sin of his people, all of the sin of the world, all of the opposition from unjust men and women aimed against himself, and he will ride his way all the way to the cross on a donkey. Ride his way all the way to the cross on a donkey. He'll be despised and rejected, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But you know what? In his death on the cross, he will secure all of the eternal blessings of God for his people. In that act of meekness and humility, he secured all the peace that we enjoy with God and with others. By being nailed to the tree and and being made subject to all of the opposition and hostility, the Lord Jesus Christ would secure for his people all the eternal blessings of God, the presence of God, the peace of God, the dwelling of God with his people. And he would say, come to me and trust me. I am the covenant son. I am the covenant Lord. All the covenant promises that God was promising Isaac, they all fell on the Lord Jesus. They all centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I hope that as you go through the trials and the sin and the opposition of living the Christian life, as you go through all those experiences in different shapes and form, that you will look in faith to the Lord Jesus. That's, that's what God was teaching Isaac. Trust me as you go through this. One of the interesting things, I'll close with this thought. Isaac doesn't run away. That's a profound thought. Isaac doesn't run away. He stays in the land. He learns to trust the Lord. He learns to endure as seeing him who is invisible. He learns to walk by faith and not by sight. That's what God wants for every single person in this room with a world that is absolutely hostile to the truth of Christianity, that we would learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we go through uh, trials that often leave us discouraged and, and weary and downcast, as we battle with the sin that so often and easily weighs us down, and as we are the objects of the opposition of a world that hates you, a world that hates that you've been gracious to your people, a world that hates that you've redeemed us out of it, we pray, our God, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray that you would fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, the one who came lowly and riding on a donkey, the one who rode to the cross to take all of our sin and all of our fear and all of our anxiety on himself. Our God, we pray that you would increase our faith this morning in the covenant son in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.